Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's awesome. Yeah, my son judges how good a doctor I am by my Google reviews. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting <laughs> how, our, how our kids perceive our, our online footprint, you know? Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show, Is It Serious?, a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune. My friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. In addition to being a physician, I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and investor, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone. And I'm Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome. So I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. All right. So good afternoon, Mark. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm well. Thanks for checking in. And I have to tell you, J.L., I've realized in speaking to you on the podcast, literally chatting, how much I miss conversation. It is a lost <laughs> art. And I love my friends so much, especially my friends from high school and college. But so much of our interaction these days is text, not talk. And you know, early in COVID, we would do Zoom calls. But you know, those are kind of fallen off. I think they were they were very 2020, early pandemic mm-hmm. chic, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, learning how to make sourdough or hoarding toilet paper. <laughs> but you know, all that's to say, I really, I really uh, love getting to chat with you. And uh, so, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And I will, I will argue that when we look back 50 years on those sourdough videos, people are going to say, "Now, what the, what the hell was that all about?" <laughs> uh, I'm doing great over here. I'm very encouraged to see that one of one of the fastest growing podcasts in the Offscript Health Network. So uh, that's been very encouraging. Um, it's also exciting to see the early signs of spring here in New York after really a very long and hard two years of uncertainty brought about by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And you know. It's it's interesting. The emotional challenge brought about by the pandemic led us to formulate today's question, which is, what is the difference between normal sadness and depression? So I'll tee it up this way. So this may seem like a non sequitur to start this episode, but Mark, are you familiar with the show Different Strokes? Okay, so as a Scotsman, I have to admit a huge <laughs> gap in my American cultural education, okay? It basically started... <laughs> in 1987 when I got here because before that growing up in the UK I literally had four TV channels and the only shows Mm -hmm. that got exported from America to Scotland where I grew up and this was a very limited palette were the Uh A-Team and the Dukes of (laughs) Hazzard (laughs) so no unfortunately I'm not familiar with different strokes Oh my God, and I and I have to think about our representation to foreigners. If the A Team and the Dukes of Hazard are your notion of what it yes. means to be an American, oh my goodness! Yes. 
well, as you may know, uh, and as you may have learned along the way, Different Strokes is an iconic sitcom that ran here in the United States from 1978 to 1985. And actually, you can still uh, find it on streaming services. And it was really a big part of my life and a show that I watched all the time when I was a kid. It's famous for popularizing the catchphrase, what you talking about, Willis? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Yes. And as you probably know, I'm a fool for pop culture trivia. And I just discovered, like literally doing the research for this episode, that the theme to that song was composed and performed by Alan Thicke. I was like, what? How is that? What? (laughs) Renaissance man, Alan Thicke. Well, that's proof that the apple can fall far from the tree because Blurred Lines by his wayward son, Robin, is probably my least favorite song. I have a lot of anti-nausea drugs at my disposal as a cancer doc, and that track turns my stomach. Yuck. Yeah, yeah. I'm not not a huge Robin Thicke fan, although he's made quite a living as a as a game show judge. So uh, we'll give him props for that. So in addition to being, you know, a very popular sitcom, Different Strokes is remembered for having a number of what they called very special episodes, which has sort of become a term of art in the, in the television space, uh, where they focus really on quite serious issues, issues like racism, drug and alcohol use, child sex abuse. Mm. Um, and they really popularized having popular shows or sitcoms talk about what were often taboo topics. Um, so while we always try to keep it upbeat here, and I love talking to you and I love joking with you. I think today is going to be one of our very special episodes where we talk about a more serious issue, which is sadness and depression and more broadly, mental health. Yeah. And gosh, that sounds really progressive for a show uh, in that time. But, you know, even in the contemporary world, Jay, I think it's really crucial to, to shine a light on this topic, to expose it as more Uh, than just an issue of willpower. You know, I think that stop being sad is pretty terrible, heartless um, advice. This is not just about volition. This is is serious. This is mental illness that we're going to address. Absolutely. And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before, but I, I continue to believe that, you know, this collective tragedy that we've experienced with this pandemic, it, it consistently feels to me like we've under-responded to it from an emotional standpoint. It's like, you know, this pandemic just happened, you know? In the United States, we're approaching a million documented COVID deaths. If you look at excess deaths, we're definitely above a million. In New York City alone, we've been dealing with this for two years now. We had 40,000 people die here. We had people die in our building, people die in our parish. Um, And, you know, there have been many days, especially early in the pandemic that were filled with sadness. And I don't feel like we've really ever had a chance to talk about that um, from an emotional standpoint. And, you know, I wanted to get your experience. You know, you're in Salt Lake City. I mean, what's the reaction been there? You know, you guys got hit later. You sort of had a different experience. But tell me about that. Well, let me start national, then I'll tell you about the state. So uh, we'll we'll make it happy right away. I'll invoke Joseph Stalin. And you're like, wow, where is he going with this? (laughs) This guy's going to get us canceled. It's like our fourth episode. So Stalin said, and this is such a chilling truth. He said, a single death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. And he was doing that really to sort of mask his atrocities. And he was an absolute monster. Mm-hmm. But he realized that like the sheer volume of loss at that scale, it's it's numbing. It like is. our heads just can't process it. Mm-hmm. And then that means our hearts can't really either. And, you know, it's so fascinating to hear your experience in New York City versus my experience in the state of Utah and in Salt Lake City. So statewide, we're, we're the youngest state. Mm-hmm. So you would think we'd be buffered by age, and I suppose to some extent we are, but we've had more than 4,000 COVID-related deaths. 
And, you know, I, I think one sort of yardstick, I guess, might be a, a careful metaphor for loss in America is 9-11. And I say that very, very carefully mm-hmm. to someone in New York City. You know, when you think about the number of lives that we lost and all witnessed the loss on, on 9-11, just the deaths in Utah exceed that number for what that is worth as a, as a comparator. Wow. So when you think about 40,000, you know, residents of New York City dying from the pandemic, it's just, it's staggering. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned uh, the fire department because I live actually very close to the Fireman's Memorial. It's a beautiful memorial on Riverside Drive. Mm. And every year on 9-11, they have a memorial to the firefighters who died. I think there were like a 300 firefighters who died. And they're always, it's, it's always such a, like a beautiful, moving ceremony. They they ring the bell for every firefighter who passed away. And I just don't know, I, I hope we get to a place like that for COVID because so many people have been impacted in so many many different ways. Yeah, no, that's, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine now that we're going to get to that memorial. And, you know, as doctors, we like to think about data and the data pretty clearly shows that the pandemic has been hard on everybody. You know, the, a study conducted by researchers from the CDC and the Census Bureau found that between August 19th of 2020 and February 1st of 2021. So that's sort of like, you know, real intense part of the pandemic. The number of people who experienced symptoms of anxiety or depression in the past seven days when they were studied had increased from 36.4% to 41.5%. So that's a pretty significant increase. Mm -hmm. And those who reported that they needed to have but did not receive mental health counseling had increased from 92 to 11.7%. So it's interesting, you know, I'll be very, um, I'm looking forward to follow-up studies here because I I can only imagine that those numbers have gone up as we've gone along. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, I think mental health in general, like cancer, and again, I'm going to speak to that as an oncologist, has long been a taboo topic. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting, you're you're contextualizing this appropriately in in COVID, but even before the pandemic, I, I think the culture was starting to shift, be a little bit more open and not see it as a weakness. And Again, you and I have used sort of celebrities for good and for bad for examples before. I think it's absolutely crucial that Olympians, you know, people at the peak performance of their bodies have admitted Mm -hmm. to having mental health problems. And, you know, Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, the Winter Olympics just wrapped up, Michaela Schifrin talking about their experiences, I actually think is incredibly humanizing. You can literally do everything you can to perfect your physical performance and you can still be plagued with mental issues. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting that you talk about humanizing these elite athletes. You know, we, a big theme in the show is humanizing doctors. And, you know, I I think a big thing that a lot of people don't understand is that sadness and depression is a real thing for physicians. It was actually a huge thing for us in our training, a real occupational hazard. Again, to cite some data, 2004 study showed that 550% of residents, you know, doctors in training suffered from depression. Mm up to 75% of OBGYN residents and 63% of internal medicine residents showed sign of depression. And I can definitely tell you, like for me and I, I, and you know, some of the people I was closest to in residency, depression was like this constant thing that you just Mm -hmm. sort of had to battle through. I mean, I think fortunately for me, a lot of it was sleep related. So whenever I could get my sleep, sleep clock right, generally the depression would, the symptoms would go away. But you know, when you're pulling 24, 30 hours, hour shifts. It's just really hard. So, I mean, what, you know, you trained a little bit after me, they sort of changed the work hours. What was your experience like? 
Yeah, I literally lived through that transition. And, and I'll tell you, it was better. Um, so I trained at Baylor mm-hmm. College of Medicine in Houston. Mm-hmm. And I trained between 2005 and 2009. That's when I was a resident. And we actually had something called the Resident Assistance Program. Wow. And it was very authentically focused and proactively focused on our well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was actually, again, for its time, quite progressive. And rather than being reactive, it said, okay, we're going to manage your stress. We're going to try to avert Burnout. And, and I am very fortunate. I think I was part of that program. Even more recent studies show, though, JL, that while things are getting a little bit better, mm-hmm. you know, that number you cited of 50% of residents being affected, I mean, we're, we're not we're not massively improved. Um, the ranges vary. They range from 21 to 43% now on the prevalence of depression. Mm-hmm. But here's what I find most worrisome, and I think maybe you can relate to this, is the increase that happens that first year, sometimes the first year of residency yeah. is called internship, mm-hmm. the average amount of increase in uh, training depression is, is about 15 or 16% in that first year. And I think it's such an abrupt transition. Like you mentioned, there's the, mm-hmm. the physical part of it, the sleep deprivation. But I think the psychological weight, sure. you actually said uh, in one of our prior conversations, of now you are the doctor and you know heavy is the head <laughs> that has to make the decisions. I think, that, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think it's hard to pull apart that circumstance from this, this real mental health issue. Absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, as you talk about burnout, I'm in a in a, a regular card game with some guys that I did residency with uh, who are all gone on to do their own things. And, you know, one of the interesting things that they mentioned to me is that uh, hospitals, health systems are really starting to take provider burnout seriously yes. and doing like re- real, real efforts, not just window dressing, but making real efforts to try to help providers. Because again, I think it was already tough to begin with. And then now you have this pandemic, which is literally going to be causing people to just leave medicine, leave nursing, leave, you know, physical therapy. And it's good to see that that kind of stuff is happening now. You and know? even if you want to think about it as a, as a kind of cold calculating physical perspective, the investment to recruit a new doctor or healthcare provider versus, you know, retaining the person you have and keeping them healthy. I mean, that is such a, uh, a disparate sort of fiscal outlay on top of just being the right thing to do for your employees right. and the people that work uh, with you and for you. It's always great to hear that, you know, things are being done to, to help people dealing with sadness and depression. But one of the big things that we really worry about with these issues is suicide, yeah. right? And I think that a lot of people don't understand that suicide, there are almost 50,000 suicides yeah. every year. Yeah. Suicide is one of the leading causes of death in certain age groups and demographics. It's like the number two or number three. There are two times as many suicides as there are homicides. And the scary thing is, is that the suicide rate increased in the United States 30% from 2000 to 2020. Um, So that's, you know, a concerning thing. But what I always like to say about suicide is that there's help out there for people who are feeling helpless. Yeah. So I think at this point in the show in particular, it's important to talk about the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. I'll give the phone number here and then there'll be links in the show notes. So it's 800-273-8255. One of the things I wanted to mention here, JL, and you know this, but I I think it has Mm -hmm. to be said, it can't be left tacit or or unsaid. Talking to someone about suicidal thoughts doesn't make them more likely to take their own life. And you can help someone who is suicidal just by listening to them without without judging them. You can support them. You don't have to be judgmental. And the reason I think this is so important is as we were preparing to talk about this, I was stunned Mm -hmm. to find a study from not that long ago, 2008, 
of UK physicians and a quarter mm-hmm. of family doctors there, primary care physicians, thought it was inappropriate to broach the subject wow. of suicide for, and I, I guess when I was thinking about it, I mean, fear of, of inception, that they were going to plant the idea mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't already there. And, and they said that the notion of screening for suicidal ideation, thinking about suicide, mm-hmm. could induce a person to have thoughts of self-harm. And, you know, again, wow. hopefully we've come a long way since 2008, but that's just a a, a recent to me uh, medical paper saying that wow we are thinking the wrong way about this absolutely absolutely and and again we can't emphasize that enough just sometimes asking helping can be life-changing for somebody who is stuck in a hole who is feeling hopeless who is suicidal so talk to people even if you think that nothing's wrong right talk to your friends talk to your family it can make a world of difference yeah absolutely all right. So, so with all these layers of emotion that people experience in daily life and especially during pandemic times, you know, how do you sort it all out? How do you know what is normal sadness? What is depression? Um, and after the break, we're going to talk about what it is, what's the difference between the two. And we're going to provide some useful tools and resources uh, for people who are looking for help or want to help somebody else. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, so the question of our episode is, what's the difference between normal sadness and depression? So I think it helps to define sadness first. Sadness is generally believed to be a a normal human emotion, and that occurs as a result usually of a trigger or some kind of event. So losing a loved one, uh, losing a job, watching your favorite sports franchise do the same dumb things over and over and over again. And it really is a universal emotion that we've all been through ourselves. I think sadness is usually a technical term we like to say as physicians, self-limited. It usually has a beginning and an end. And it's generally resolved when that triggering item or that triggering event is removed. Like when you move out of the New York sports market. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I I can move anywhere I want to. I'll still be a Yankee fan and I'll still be suffering. (laughs) Just trying to inject a tiny bit of love here. I'm sorry. Um, But you're you're right. When we get concerned, Jail, as docs, is is persistence and interference. When things are lasting a a long period of time, and we'll get into some of those definitions in a sec, Mm -hmm. but also when it's associated with symptoms that make it otherwise difficult to carry on your normal life. I think that actually is the barometer I keep coming back to is how much is this preventing you from doing the things that you need to do and the things that you want to do. And uh, then we start thinking about a clinical diagnosis of depression. And again, I will defer to your expertise here, but the first disorder I wanted to talk about is major depressive disorder, sometimes abbreviated MDD. Mm -hmm. It is at least two weeks of a pervasive, low mood, low self-esteem, and loss of interest or pleasure in normally enjoyable activities. And again, I think one of the things Mm -hmm. that's so striking, and I want people to know they are not alone, is just how common this is. So in 2020, which again was a, in some ways, exceptional year, in other ways not, 8.4% 
of U.S. adults, that's mm. 21 million people. Big number. Met the criteria for major depressive disorder. I mean, it's 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 staggering. And it is mm-hmm. it is a little bit more common in women than in men. It's more common in young adult populations and actually very significantly mm-hmm. across cultures. In the West, uh, I think we have a, a language and a recognition of depression. I think we should just admit may not always exist elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And then people tend to see depression as a diagnosis that's made by psychiatrists. But, but, and this goes back to healthcare systems and delivery of care, most people will mm-hmm. be diagnosed by their primary care provider. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure in, in the course of your treating patients, you've seen people who are clearly yes. depressed and you make the diagnosis on the spot when yep. you're taking care of their di- their depression or, or their diabetes or their hypertension or whatever they come to you with. Now, interestingly, people listening closely might wonder if there is a minor depressive disorder, right? If there's a major, there's got to be a minor. So there's actually a condition called dysthymia. And uh, dysthymia is one of those words that makes you happy that you studied Greek or Latin when you were <laughs> yes. in undergrad. Uh, because it's impossible to spell otherwise. But it's a milder form of depression and it generally lasts longer. So milder and lasting longer. And these days, dysthymia is being referred to as persistent depressive disorder. But I think most of the discussion is around major depressive disorder, sort of the more intense aspect of it. Yeah. And Again, back to how long these conditions or, or, or feelings are lasting, as you might imagine, one of the things I deal with a lot, both as a person, as a human being, and also as a professional oncologist, is bereavement. Like, mm-hmm. I am basically constantly experiencing loss. And again, this mm-hmm. is not like pity mark. I'm just being very honest with you and our audience. What I also find fascinating, and we've talked about the loss of our fathers, like I lost my dad almost three decades ago, and I'd be lying to you if I said it doesn't still affect me. So what I'm coming to Mm -hmm. is just this month, and quite controversially, the the key manual, the the, uh, book of definitions, if you will, of psychiatric illnesses, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5 is what it's called. DSM-5, yes. Was updated, and this is fascinating to me, to characterize what they call the prolonged grief disorder. Mm-hmm. And this is where we're getting, we're getting back into how long are things going on. And a lot of people took issue with this because what they did is they sort of sort of drew a line at a year. Okay. And they said that if you have incapacitating, pining, and ruminating on this loss more than a year mm-hmm. after it happened, that they're, they are now qualifying that as pathological, as, as dysfunction. And, mm. and really, again, I think it all comes back to is we can quibble on the length of time. Uh, because I think personally, yep. I think gr- grief varies in length for lots of different people. But it goes back to mm-hmm. how much is this this condition? How much is it preventing your return to normal activity? I think that's that's very true in a lot of mental health diagnoses. You know, is what's the level of impairment? How are these symptoms that you're having impairing your normal activities? And to be honest, you know, in my space, you know, depression is very common in the substance use disorder space. There are many people who are dealing with a substance use disorder who also have a mental health disorder. So they have a problem with alcohol or opiates, but then they Mm -hmm. also have depression or anxiety. And that population of of people is very significant. Mark, I mean, I have to imagine that in cancer, depression's got to be a a, a huge issue, right? It is so common. It it almost becomes chicken and the egg sometimes. I don't say that glibly. Mm -hmm. I say that incredibly seriously. So it is actually one of the most prevalent features of one Mm -hmm. of the most serious cancers I treat, which is pancreas cancer. And Mm -hmm. you might say, well, obviously I'd be depressed too if I knew I had a very serious, often fatal cancer. But this is what's so fascinating, JL, is that the depression can be a precursor to the disease. So in hindsight, Mm -hmm. so you look back 
at what was happening the months or even years before the person was diagnosed with pancreas cancer. And there's some estimates that up to half of these patients had signs of depression. Wow. And so that gets really interesting, right? Because mm-hmm. that gets into the chemical theory of, of yeah. disease. Um, is, it, is it the inflammation that the cancer is causing? As you know, in medicine, we sometimes invoke a, a, a word or a phrase called cytokines, uh, which basically are chemical mm-hmm. signals going from one part of the body to the other. And, and yes, after diagnosis, up to three-fourths of pancreas cancer patients experience depression, which is more than other uh, GI cancers I treat. But nonetheless, I think this tells us there's an incredibly complex interplay here between physical illness and mental health. So I guess the way we can frame this question is, how do I know if I have major depressive disorder? And the diagnosis is a clinical diagnosis. You you get that diagnosis from a provider. It's usually made by speaking to somebody and undergoing what's called a mental status exam. There's really no lab tests or imaging that's used to make this diagnosis. So it's, you know, sort of words coming out of your mouth. And again, most of the time when people are being diagnosed with depression, they're not being diagnosed by a psychiatrist. They're being diagnosed by a primary care physician, maybe a nurse practitioner or some other person who's interacting with them on a primary care basis. And essentially the provider is going to give you a list of symptoms and we'll talk about those in a second. It's also a great time to let our audience in on a little secret uh, uh, of our profession, which is that we learn and retain information, especially in medical school with mnemonics, mm-hmm. right? So M-N-E-M-O-N-I-C, a memory device, helps you remember things. If we're going to invoke ancient Greek, like you did earlier, there was, there was a god of memory. That's where that, that word comes from. Mm-hmm. And usually what we're doing, of course, is creating an acronym, a phrase, a song that helps you remember uh, elements, at least, of, of what you're trying to uh, retain. Uh, so, for instance, I'm going to sound like a complete robot for telling you this, but there's actually an acronym for breaking bad news. Okay. Which is SPIKES. So, setting, mm-hmm. perception, invitation to the conversation, knowledge, what does the person know, empathy, being you know, authentic, and then summarizing at the end. And so, again, I don't, I'm honest, you know, I don't go into every single sort of difficult conversation necessarily having to follow that script, but it's helpful, especially when you're first learning how to break bad Mm -hmm. news to have at least some rubric to follow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's after a while, you know, it just becomes second nature, but it's so helpful in the early days when you're learning. And I, I remember the, the, the big one that, uh, that sticks out to me from medical school is the cranial nerve. So, you know, you have these nerves yes. that control the nerves in your head. And the one that we, that, uh, that the standard issue was on old Olympus's towering top, a Finn and German viewed some hop. So like yep. the O is the ocular nerve, the, um, uh, olfactory nerve. And then, you know, the, you basically go through all the different nerves there. Some people may not know is that the dirtier and more offensive that these mnemonics are, the easier they are to remember. So there is a dirty version of that cranial nerve one. Uh, and uh, it's probably got a PMRC sticker on it if you're old <laughs> enough to remember the Parents Music Resource Center. Uh, but you can definitely find the dirty versions with a quick uh, web search. Yeah, and actually on that parental advisory sticker, some Tupac album covers were apparently designed, like Me Against the World. They designed it knowing that there was going to be that sticker in the bottom right-hand corner, which I think is kind of hilarious graphic design. Absolutely. And, and you know, and they realize like, hey, if we if we make this taboo thing, right, you know, more more people will want to buy it. So uh, CDs, yeah. That's right. So the mnemonic that we'll use for depression or one of the common ones is Siggy Caps, S-I-G-E-C-A-P-S. But the one I always, I always sort of modified it and I like Miggy Caps, M-I-G-E-C-A-P-S-S. So we'll go through them. So M in Miggy Caps is 
depressed mood. So that's actually one of the uh, major criteria that you need to have. The other one is uh, I, which is interest. So a lot of people who have depression will have a loss of interest in activities that they formerly like. Generally, those are considered the two major criteria Mm -hmm. and you have to have at least one. And then the rest are a series of minor criteria of which you generally have to have about five. So uh, other words that we, or other symptoms that we include, G for guilt. A lot of people who are depressed have a sense of worth E is for energy. Often people have a lack of energy. And this is, um, I'm sure you've seen this in, in, in a, like a primary care clinic, somebody presenting with fatigue and tiredness, and that is often the presenting symptom for them. C for concentration or cognition. Sometimes people have difficulty thinking. A is for appetite, which is often related to weight loss and sometimes weight gain. Uh, P is for psychomotor. Sometimes people will be agitated or lethargic. Uh, One of the S's is suicide. People may have a preoccupation with death. Sometimes people may even be making a plan. And then finally, the last S is for sleep. And uh, sometimes people with depression will have increased sleep during the daytime and then often have disrupted or decreased sleep at night. So Miggy Caps is the mnemonic for depression. Depression. And again, you need one of the two majors and five of the minor symptoms. That's a great mnemonic. And I also like the way that you modified it to kind of put the, the, two, the two major criteria at the top. So actually, I'll kind of mm-hmm. jump off when you mentioned sleep. So there's many treatment options for depression. I think it's really important to say that they are not all prescriptions. But one class of medicines mm-hmm. I think sometimes gets overlooked is sleep aids. Like, you can argue mm-hmm. that, you know, sleep and depression, obviously, you know, sleep disorders are, are different. But to your own point earlier, restoring normal sleep can go a long way to helping with your mental health. So there's that. And then there's a variety mm-hmm. of antidepressant drugs, jail that work on different neurotransmitters. This gets into the, you know, the chemical theory of depression. A lot of them work on mm-hmm. serotonin. So if people have heard of an SSRI, that's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. We don't have to get into all that. Uh, and similarly, mm-hmm. uh, there's other uh, chemicals in the brain that can be um, adjusted too. And so it's important, of course, to talk to a prescriber uh, about which one of these medicines would be most appropriate for you. There's also therapy and counseling, which these days is available both online and offline. So it doesn't necessarily have to be in person in a therapist's office. In fact, there may never have been more options for doing this um, asynchronously or digitally. You may never actually have to physically meet uh, your counselor, and you can still get uh, the benefit of talking to them typically through the device, actually kind of like you and I are talking right now. And then finally, I think mm-hmm. I'd be remiss to point out that if I didn't point out that there's other behaviors that can actually be a huge influence on in mental health too. I've heard it said that if exercise was rebranded as an antidepressant, it would be worth trillions <laughs> of dollars. And I, I think there's some truth to that. Absolutely. And there's a weird sort of cycle there where you know the more someone is truly depressed, I think the less motivated they will be to, to move and to be physically fit. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, I think it is a, a fantastic way um, to the extent that you, you feel like you could do it uh, to start working um, on, on, your, on yourself, both physically and mentally. Totally agree. And I love exercise as a, as a treatment for depression and, and many other things, actually. And in addition to, uh, you know, the resources that we've talked about so far, there are a number of fantastic organizations uh, that have resources that are available for people who are dealing with depression. So uh, the first one is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It often goes by the uh, acronym of NAMI. um, And the website is just NAMI.org. They have lots of resources for families, individuals and individuals, including groups and communities, lots of online and offline resources. 
And, you know, the, the pandemic has been such a challenge, but there have been so many opportunities that come out of it. And certainly NAMI has found the opportunity to really expand their programming internationally and across the country uh, to help people who might not have otherwise been able to access resources that were, let's say, concentrated in New York. So uh, definitely a site to look at and an organization to follow. Then there's also SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So it is the government agency that is responsible for coordinating national mental health and substance use efforts. The website is SAM. HSA.gov. They are the ones who actually power the National Suicide Prevention Helpline, and they have a ton of resources and publications and studies going on. Their budget is in the billions of dollars, and they do great work and uh, definitely an organization you can reach out to and look to if you're dealing with an issue. All right. So, Mark, it's been great speaking with you today about sadness and depression and and mental health in our sort of first very special episode today. Yeah. And I think it's important to normalize precisely these sorts of conversations. And so as doctors, this is a case of do as we say and as we do. And we hope that you'll feel empowered to talk to the people in your life, especially if you feel like you're needing support, but also if you sense that someone else is needing support. And again, one message we want to get across is you really are not implanting quote unquote bad ideas in someone else's head if you just inquire how they're feeling. I think we definitely want to overturn that notion. Absolutely. And before we go, we always like to end with a a little nugget at the end. We wanted to talk a little bit about resilience. You could probably do a whole show about resilience, but it's an important new concept in mental health. And it's this notion that resilience means being able to adapt to life's misfortunes and setbacks. And it's actually something that can be practiced and strengthened. It's a skill. And resilience can actually help protect you from various mental health conditions, such as depression and anxiety. And there's a lot of great literature online about resilience. So just look up the word and you can find lots of great uh, sources. And in terms of tips that come out of the resilience literature, we'll just give you a few. I think number one, staying connected with other people is just critically important. So really making sure that you're staying connected with your family and friends can really help a lot. In addition, making every day meaningful. You know, making every day uh, a day where you try to accomplish something and find meaning in that day can be very helpful. Uh, Learning from experience. If you've dealt with setbacks before, looking back to your experience and how did you cope with that can help you develop strategies for moving forward. Remain hopeful. I think that's that's great advice, uh, you know, just to maintain a positive outlook uh, that can carry you far on its own. Taking care of yourself, I think, is critically important. Eating right, exercising, taking care of your self-care. And then finally, being proactive, not waiting until a problem has progressed for years and years to deal with it. Trying to be proactive, engaging early can make a huge difference. Um, and sometimes, you know, you'll see it described as grit and resilience is becoming a standard and part of the medical training and uh, certainly as we've experienced in our later medical careers. Yeah, and I think the fact that it is being um, taught to doctors then actually makes us much better suited to to help our patients uh, with grit or resilience or whatever word we want to call it. All right, so that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. As always, we love to hear from the audience. Uh, so if you have any medical questions or would like clarification about something medical, please ask us. You can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Jean-Luc Neptune. Mark? My Twitter handle is at Mark Lewis MD. You can also email us at isitserious at offscript, no T, dot com, or call us at Offscript Health and leave a message. We might just use your question on the show. Our number is 855 855- 
audio 66 that's 855-283-4666 and as always while we love talking about medicine and healthcare remember that this show doesn't provide medical advice if you have questions make sure you ask your doctor and if you're struggling with sadness or depression reach out all of the resources mentioned in this show will be in our show notes you are not alone and help is just a resource away please take good care of yourself and join us next time for is it serious That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.